Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to another spooky episode of Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, uh, I believe tonight we're going to talk about some really exciting and spooky subjects. Yes! Werewolves, zombies, monsters, and other things that go bump in the night, pretty much. Absolutely. And I'm thinking that perhaps this would even carry on into a sort of thirdish episode. So, you know, for some post-Halloween <laughs> fun. <laughs> yes. Just because there's so many monsters, and I feel like, you know, we'll talk about some of the theory and stuff in some specific cases, and then maybe next time we'll just give a big list of monsters from different places because <laughs> there's so many this is one of the things i realized when i was thinking about what we might cover is there just so many i mean mm -hmm. it's like really unbelievable and so even if you assume people are familiar with certain things so probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with europe maybe we wouldn't do as many of the things you know mm -hmm. um Sort of like hobgoblins, right? Puck. Um, I mean, but even so, there's still just so many things to cover, right? And it is a yeah. little bit of a shame um, to leave things out, right? So actually, I didn't write down anything on hobgoblins or Puck. <laughs> but now I feel like I should definitely mention them, having mentioned them. Mm -hmm. um, because obviously, right, if you don't know Puck from anything else, um, you know him from Shakespeare, Presumably. Yes. Where he's, of course, known as... He's a hobgoblin, right? He's known as Robin Goodfellow, Puck. Um, and the first fairy specifically says to him, right, that you're... All the, all the mischievous, impish things that he does. But, right, she says, you know, that those who sort of treat you well, right, you um, do their work and they shall have good luck. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, of course, the famous thing about that type of sort of hobgoblin is that they will help you out. Um, and the most famous, I guess, modern contemporary version of that is Dobby and Harry Potter, right? And you mm -hmm. gave them any number of presents, but you couldn't give them clothes. If you gave them clothes, they would leave. Oh. Um, and there's also a wonderful series of children's books where there's a hobgoblin known as Hob who helps out people um, that I very much enjoyed as a kid. <laughs> But yeah, and so uh, sort of the interesting thing, it is, I do want to comment, of course, that J.K. Rowling has turned out to be a TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist. I think we've mentioned um, this before. Which is, yes, which is horrible and terrible, and I, I don't want to mention her without mentioning well. that, ever. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's so many extraordinary things. I do feel like you can still have a positive relationship with the books yes despite the, the author like i have enjoyed some things that hemingway wrote despite uh not probably ever really wanting to meet him in person oh i mean i go to you wagner know? i think we've discussed this yeah, yeah absolutely wagner so, don't think i mean, yeah really get along with wagner but i mean to be fair both of those though i find these things much less problematic in some ways when people are no longer alive Right. You know, when they are alive, you feel like it's sort of your duty to say something. But yes, well, I do want to comment. By the way, I'm hitting the table, so we're going to get weird sounds on the 
microphone. Yeah. I edit um, those out when I can. (laughs) No. Sorry. There was a really funny one in the episode that we just put up online. Episode 14, where it sounds like I was scraping something alive the table, and I clearly didn't realize I was doing it. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah. The best part is when you're like rubbing your hands together or something, and I can edit out part of it, but not the whole thing. Yes. So you get like... This is what I do in class. (laughs) Yes. I have a lot of famous gestures that my students know very well. Anyway. Um, But, you know, yeah, the books are so fantastic. And to be fair, you know, like, if you think about the movies, like... Daniel Radcliffe um, has come out, you know, he supports the Trevor Project. He wrote a great letter recently mm-hmm. about, you know, all of this. So, you know, there are still plenty of people affiliated with those books who are very much worth supporting. And the books themselves are incredible. So, um, and I do want to say one of the things is all of this stuff that is there, right? So Dobby is, he's known as a house elf, right? She has created her own version of the Hobgoblin essentially, mm-hmm. right? So house elves. And it's sort of a brilliant, honestly, it's a brilliant progressive take on the Hobgoblin, right? Um, because this idea that it's not sort of this unknown force, you know, being, this unknown mm-hmm. little being who comes in when you're asleep and does things for like food or whatever, um, that they're actually essentially um, enslaved, right? And that people purposely don't give them clothes because that would free them. Yeah. Which is a really horrifying, but in some ways very brilliant take on that idea. Um, and so the, um, that Lucius Malfoy is tricked into giving Dobby a sock, right? That Harry manages to trick him into doing that. So then Dobby is free. Um, and Hermione, of course, ends up, as we find out, working for house elf rights. <laughs> yes. Um, and things like that, which is great. Um, but it's, it's a sort of wonderful take on this very, 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 very old tradition. Right. Um, and we see a lot of that in the Harry Potter books. So the Basilisk, which we've mentioned on this, um, I think our second episode about the plague. Yes. We discussed the Basilisk. Snakes are, of course, brilliant. Serpents are brilliant. Um, and where would monsters be without them? Dragons, right? Yeah. But the Basilisk is this very specific sort of legendary beast. Um, and... Mentioned by Shakespeare in Winter's Tale, which you have me cited as the basilisk, right? And now everyone knows what that means, right? It means mm-hmm. you'd be paralyzed by its sight, right? But that, you know, she really introduced a whole, not just generation, I mean, several generations of people who might not have known these stories anymore, because some of them have sort of faded out, right? Mm-hmm. To all of these legends again, which is sort of brilliant. Um, but the basilisk is fantastic, uh, we mentioned it in the second episode on the plague because of the idea that basilisk blood could be used to poison wells and potentially spread the plague. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were a lot of anti-Semitic sort of stories where Jews might be doing this. And um, pogroms, of course, around the plague. You know, um, So um, there are also kappas, I know, in Harry Potter. They live in the lake. Yes. Um, that's a Japanese water monster. You know, so there's a really wonderful way in which those books give us a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, there's um, Cerberus, right? Guarding the hallway. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Hagrid gets him. Yes, he names him Fluffy, yeah. I think. <laughs> yes. <like that. laughs> yes, and he's three-headed. He got him in the book, he says, he got him from someone who was Greek. He says, I got him off a Greek chapter. Down the pub. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, down at the pub. <laughs> um, the movie, for some reason, changed it. I can't remember. But the person he got it from wasn't Greek, which, of course, doesn't make any sense. Of course, the person who gave him this yes. dog was Greek. Yes. Because <laughs> it's Greek mythology, right? Yeah. But yes, Cerberus or Fluffy, who is, yes, guarding guarding the entrance to the underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in book one. So all of all of these brilliant things. Um, and of course, so this is, we're going to sort of start with werewolves. Yes. <laughs> we have a brilliant, brilliant, wonderful werewolf in the Harry Potter books, Remus Lupin. What a name. Whose name? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Names are destiny yeah, in Harry Potter. I mean, Potter. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, like you, yes. you, you want to set your kid yeah. up for success. You name him like Wolfie McWolfface. I don't know. Yes. Yes, like Bodie McBookface, yeah. I think, was the... I can't remember, but it actually won. What were they trying to name? Yeah. <laughs> they were trying to name a boat a, in England. Yeah. <laughs> it was an exploration vessel, I um, think. There you go. Yes. But, yeah. Um, it is funny, because um, you have, yes, <laughs> Remus Lupin. Lupin, of course, right, from Wolf. So, Lupus mm-hmm. Wolf. Um, and Remus, of Romulus course. Romulus and Remus. Because of the yeah. Yes, the twins of Rome who are suckled by the wolf, right? Which is, of course, to this day, the symbol mm-hmm. of Rome, right? Yeah. Um, so, yes, he is. Yeah, I mean, he's faded, you know. <laughs> yes, his name is his destiny, um, which is funny. But um, there are a lot of wonderful things. The also really fantastic thing, of course, is that he is good. Yes. And it is very important to note and this is one of the things we're going to talk about, is that this is not unique. That, in fact, in the Middle Ages in Europe, there are tales of good werewolves. Ah. Right. So the idea that you could have a good werewolf who's a good guy is absolutely perfect, fantastic medieval lore. Mm -hmm. Um, And Remus Lupin is very clearly in that tradition. Right. Uh, That being said... They are always distinguished, even, you know, of course, in medieval lore, they're distinguished from bad werewolves. I mean, everyone knows that werewolves can also be vicious. Right. So even the tales that talk about good ones are aware that they do tend to be sort of unique. Mm -hmm. And so in Harry Potter, of course, you have Fenrir Greyback, who is... um, Fenrir also... (laughs) Evil. (laughs) Has somewhat of a wolfy name. Um, Yes, he is the Norse wolf. Be, be careful yeah. when you meet people yes. in Harry Potter, I guess, is is the lesson that you should learn. Well, I mean, figure out yeah. what their name is <laughs> and what it means, right? Um, yeah, everyone's, pretty much everyone is named mm-hmm. in a way that is extremely telling. Yeah. Um, but yes, I am pretty sure that Fenrir yeah. is the wolf in Thor Ragnarok. Um, he Right, he has to be. Pretty sure she calls him Fenrir. You have to. Um, Fenrir or Fenris or something. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> there he is again, as as himself, right? As the wolf. Um, the funny thing, of course, this is not Marvel. This is actual Norse mythology. <laughs> um, is, you know, his lineage. I mean, he is... The son of Loki and stuff. Uh, but anyway, so um, we have this sort of wide, you know, range of wolfy, wolfy tales. <laughs> yes. Um, 
And one of the things that I did want to also say that we'll sort of get into it a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. is sort of why monsters exist, right? So this idea that there are so many, like I said, which is why we probably will devote another yeah. episode where we just like try and list as many as we can <laughs> and give little examples of them. Um, and mm-hmm. lots of them have lasted for so long, right? Uh, I think we've mentioned banshees before. I'm not sure. Um, they're definitely also mentioned in Harry Potter. They show up famously. Terry Pratchett. Um, in yes um the banshee who is Pratchett. shy yes. there's a little bit does not like to go outside yes um yes yes mm-hmm. so um yeah a couple of zombies zombie yeah as well yeah they have their own sort of club yes. that they form or their own i don't know their own group <laughs> to to advocate for those who are yes slightly strange um and of course Terry Pratchett, we also have golems. Which are more of a Jewish... Are they Brilliantly. specifically a Jewish tradition? They've always been presented to me as such. Yes. I mean, yes. The golem... Mm-hmm. A golem is Jewish. <laughs> the idea of, of course, of animating right. something into life is not Jewish. Yeah. But the golem is the Jewish version of that tale. Yes. Um, and so, of course, mm-hmm. and Terry Pratchett is absolutely using the Jewish version, right? The idea of clay... Adam, of course, yeah. Adam means earth or clay. So Adam is animated by God. And the idea is that if you were sort of holy enough, yeah. you too could animate clay. You wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to do what God did, but you could make a sort of passing semblance. I've heard different versions of the story, either that if you were extremely holy. So Judaism has a lot of different names yes. for God. But there's one name that's considered, like, the one true name that apparently, like, you can conjure mm-hmm. with um, because names have a lot of power. Yes. So you would write the name on a piece of paper or parchment or whatever and roll it up and put it in the golem's mouth and that would animate it. Um, and then when you take the paper out, it, you know, goes back to being clay. And the other version that I've heard is you write the word emet, uh, which is spelled um, aleph, mem, tav, on its forehead or on its hand. And then when you want it to, which emet means like life. And then when you want it to stop moving, you erase the aleph and it says met, which means mm-hmm. dead. And they did that one in an X-Files episode, I know. Ooh, fun. Probably because it's a lot easier to show someone like erasing the aleph than it is to be like, yes. And here is this magical parchment. Whatever you know, right? That's a great. Um, one. I as an aside, the- Ted Chiang yes. also wrote a really good short story about like coming up like these people whose job it is to come up with different formulas for different types of golems and things like that. Awesome. It's yeah, a really and neat story. Terry Pratchett's is brilliant, where they do have sort of the script in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can remove it and look at it and see what it says. But yeah, there is something sort of really brilliant about um, about the very idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, obviously the goal in some ways very closely tied to Judaism's fondness for words, <laughs> right? Yes. Words, letters. Um, so the idea you don't only say them, but you write them, right? That writing has power. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not specific to Judaism, but it is something that Judaism is very fond of. Um, and that Judaism passes on to some of the other religions that come after it. Yeah. Um, Islam and Christianity. And that sense of sort of the power of the actual written 
word, right? The actual mm-hmm. writing. So yeah, so there are various ways that you can sort of bring a golem to life. But the idea is that you animate it. Um, the word for God, by the way, is the one that um, has given rise to the name Jehovah, even though there's no way that that's actually how you would pronounce those letters. Oh, it's spelled um, yud Hey vav Hey, right? Yeah, and it requires that the Vav be both a vowel and a letter, which yes. is possible. Um, but it's known as the Tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. those four letters. And that sense that it is the sort of mystic word. <laughs> um, and so if you know how to pronounce it, that you sort of have this power. Um, and so the Tetragrammaton is frequently used in in sort of magic, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it, has, it has come to really take on a sort of magical sense. But yeah, so golem, right? The whole idea of a golem, um, that you could animate something. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which, of course, is sort of like, but not quite, zombies, Frankenstein's monsters, right? Because this is something that did not ever have life. Yeah. Right? Parts of Frankenstein's monster did, right? Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Frankenstein's monsters. No, no, it's been a long time. I only saw the I saw the young Frankenstein a lot more recently. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, well, but yeah. he does the same thing, right? It's bodies sewn together. So mm-hmm. unlike we, you tend to think of zombies as being one single body, right? But Frankenstein's monster is made up of human parts. Yes. Yeah. So he is not exactly a zombie. He's sort of new, but he it's very different from a golem, which was never alive and has no actual living parts, right? It's made out of clay, made out of clay. But it's this very interesting commentary on the sense of sort of where monsters come from, right? And so, Mm -hmm. and this is, of course, unfair. We're using the word monster because that's a word that we use. Catch-all We're not necessarily implying that, you know, monsters are necessarily monstrous. Yeah. To be fair, like, golems... What I was told is that when you take the parchment out or whatever to deanimate them, you're supposed to treat them, I don't know, like you would a Torah scroll. Like traditionally you don't, you don't just throw away a worn out Torah scroll, right? Like you wrap That's it in a talit yeah. and you, you bury it. Um, and that like somehow wrapping up the, the golem in a talit, uh, was, was a thing that you were supposed to do. So like, I have no idea why I had such extensive education on golems, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. But, like, that, that they were um, objects that... They're very important and cool. In theory, people were creating because they were afraid, right? Like Yes, they're supposed to be protecting you. The story that I was originally told was, like, that they're, the enemies of Jews were rising up against them. Yes. And so that... Yes, they protect us in pogroms. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and so that after the pogrom is done, when you don't need the golem anymore, you treat them with respect. Yes. No, absolutely. Right. Um, But there's also this question, which is why the sort of stories of the golems, there are a lot of them. There's some that are more famous than others, of course. But it's why they tend to, um, a lot of them, end with sort of questions about the golem. You know, was it the right thing to do? Does the golem end Mm -hmm. up doing things it shouldn't do, right? So there is this question, as with all monsters, um, which probably comes, actually, um, Old French, in the sense of sort of marvel, right? Mm -hmm. Something that's a marvel. And, or sort of, you know, it could also be a portent. So there is a sense of sort of fear attached to it, but also wonder, potentially, 
right? Mm -hmm. And the thing about monsters that they uh, fulfill this very interesting space, right? They exist really in a liminal area. We brought up liminal, I'm pretty sure last episode with Halloween, Mm -hmm. a threshold space, right? Betwixt and between. Monsters are not human. We're not quite sure what they are, right? Sometimes you're not sure if they're living or dead. They can be both. That's, of course, the point of the undead, right? They tend to dwell in places that are liminal themselves. So bodies of water, forests, mm-hmm. they come out at night, right? Um, so they're, they demonstrate this very transitional sort of um, aspect, right? Uh, the things on the edges. So I know we talked about the um, Hereford world map, the map of Mundi. Yeah. Map of Mundi some time ago. Um, but, you know, as with other sort of maps that frequently in the margins, there are sort of monsters, what we would call monsters. Um, sometimes there are, you know, sort of species that they thought existed that we now mm-hmm. know didn't. But frequently, it's not so much that they really thought that any of these existed. It's more a reminder again of what, what the unknown, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? It represents the unknown. So the unknown depths of a lake or an ocean, right? Um, the unknown recesses of the forest, right? The shadows of the night. Um, all of these places where they sort of dwell. Um, and even when they're supposedly good and helpful, right? Like hobgoblins and certain things, um, that there is a little bit of a question about it. Mm-hmm. And the same for the yeah. golem, right? Like- Lep- leprechauns and brownies and things. Yes. Right? They play tricks on you. Yes. They do they do happy things, but they also play tricks. Yes, absolutely. Right. Which and Puck, of course, in you know, he gives an entire list of all the stuff he's done to people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Yes. You know, and none of it's that bad. You know, what we see him do in the play, it's not that bad, but he clearly wreaks some havoc. He enjoys his mischief. Yeah. Um Yeah, so there is something very interesting about monsters, right? Um, the ways in which people have created them and the ways in which they exist to fill in a lot of things that we don't know or that we're not sure of, mm-hmm. right? I feel like some of them have sort of like liminal conditions on how they have to be van- vanquished. Yes, absolutely. Also, like, there are all those things about like you can't kill them inside the house or outside the right. house. Silver bullets. <laughs> or, you know, they can't be killed by yes. a man or a woman. Yeah. Yes. Silver bullets. Yeah, stake to the heart, right? Yes, there was a famous writer who b- came to believe that he was a werewolf in the end. Oh, that's exciting. And killed himself with a silver bullet that he had made from, like, the top of a teapot. Wow. He's Polish. Jan Potoki. Oh, he wrote a very good book called The Manuscript Found in Saragossa. Oh, yeah. Of course. Uh, which I will recommend. Yes. I did not know he thought he was a werewolf. <laughs> but... You can maybe tell from the book that he was um, a little bit weird. Wow. And, uh... <laughs> well, I mean, one of the sort of things, then, about werewolves, right, um, is is the fact that... That's a shame, because he must have thought he was an evil werewolf, um, because they can actually be good, right? Which yeah. is something that, again, um, is not as commonly known these days, but was definitely sort of... Mm-hmm. Well, we see this... We see this in the work of the great philosopher Warren Zevon, where he recounts uh, seeing a werewolf walking through Soho in the rain, just looking for a place to get uh, some beef chow mein. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
He's clearly not portrayed as a threat, merely as a, a hungry yes. dude. Yep. Yes, there it is. Uh, he had the silver bullet blessed by his village priest. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, that know. would do it. That would <laughs> do it. You gotta be oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do yeah. want to say also, by the way, before we get any further into this, werewolves, uh, it is of course assumed that it comes from the fact that the old English word for man is were. Mm-hmm. Um, the OED is a little skeptical, interestingly, of this um, because of the number of sort of forms that this word exists in and how old it is. It's not mm-hmm. clear <laughs> to the OED that that is actually where the word comes from. That the where, it might be a false etymology, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So a little bit of a question mark, maybe on that. It's the assumed, but, you know. Uh, it is a surprisingly old word <laughs> um, and exists in a lot of, you know, Old English and Norse and Old Dutch and Old, you know, before Old French. I mean, the various dialects that sort of existed. So, yeah, it's a really sort of interesting, interesting word to begin with. Speaking of the OED, their earliest quote is from Knut's Laws. So this would be a little bit after. A th- yeah, this would be from a thousand years ago. Oh, wow. And I mean, like, a, th- a thousand years yeah. ago. So around the year a thousand, a little bit after. And there's a... Knut having been a king in England, Britain, probably, at that point. Um, which I only know because I think he turns up in... <laughs> I mean, like, he's very famous, so he must turn up somewhere. Yes. about, you know, yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's a he big various deal. Various things, but... Um, but, yeah, his... So, you know, one of the things he did, I mean, there are these sort of legal codes, ecclesiastical laws, stuff like this. Um, and one of them specifically mentions um, the sort of madly ravenous werewolf. Wodeficka werewolf. You know, you don't want him to, like, rend his way through stuff to devastate stuff or to bite the sacred flock too much. <laughs> Meaning, you know, mm-hmm. people, right? You're... Okay. Um, so, Yeah. So the mention of the werewolf. This one, obviously, the werewolf is dangerous. This is a dangerous werewolf who might cause havoc amongst your people. You don't want him to do this. But the probably... I'm just going to say, I don't know, one of the most famous, maybe probably the most famous, um, tale of a werewolf from the British Isles comes from Marie de France, which is awesome. So we got a female author. Okay. Um, she is from France, <laughs> um, but is writing in what is now England, let's just say, um, for the court of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes. Known for yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Lion in Winter, yes. if you have seen that. Yeah. Also uh, Beckett, I yes. think. Yes. Known Always for Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole, basically. <laughs> um Basically, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, Peter most Tool. most famously, Henry okay. II. I mean, most of it, gosh. He's one of the big ones. I mean, he's incredibly important to really the whole sway of Western history because, you know, as much as England has yeah. had stuff to do with Western history, Henry II has a lot to do with England. One of the big things, speaking of laws, is laws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a real sort of codification of the legal codes all of this stuff so that's a big one yes i believe he was the first person who was like if something is important you got to have a backup and he started naming 
an heir who would inherit the throne as opposed to whoever has the biggest army at the end of the king's reign gets to be king next, basically. Yeah, well, because he himself came out of or was sort of king immediately after there had been a number of civil uh, civil wars. I mean, yes, civil wars, basically, um, fighting over the throne. There'd been a lot of fighting over the throne. Yes. Right. And so he ends up king <laughs> eventually. Um, he's not so much part of any of that, but he co- becomes king sort of very shortly after all that. Uh, and so basically, um, yeah, he he reigns for a long time and he really starts off you know, he's see, he's a great sort of moment um, for if you're looking for reasons why England became eventually the sort of superpower world conquering domination that it did, colonizing everything. Um, Henry II is a lot of ways a good place to start. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he does a lot to set them on that path, um, as eventually will Henry VIII, right? Um, and of course, yes. under Elizabeth, we will get the start of that expansion. Right. But Henry II, um, yes, he is also known for, let's just say, having Thomas Beckett killed. Yes. <laughs> um, basically. Yeah. Um, and I that's. I still like him, but mostly because I like Peter O'Toole. Yes. Like- um, but that's also one of those moments, as again with Henry VIII, there are a lot of interesting similarities, where the king decides that he is not subservient to the church. <laughs> yes. Basically, right? The, there, No one can be more powerful than the king. Um, and the interesting thing, of course, about both Henry II and Henry VIII is that they both saw it in this, in this instance, it wasn't even just about their own power. It is about their own power. But it is also about their power to um, solidify their state. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, that is what they're desperately trying to do. Henry VIII famously also desperately needs an heir, desperately has to make sure yeah. that this country hangs on. Again, Henry VIII is himself king after there have been a huge series of civil wars. Yeah, right um, Right after the War of the Roses. Yeah. So, again, right, he, he's very worried about the stabilization of his state. Um, and you cannot, as far as he is concerned, <laughs> let anyone meddle in that. Right, and if the church is gonna church is gonna stop you from getting divorced, then you will end the church, and that is how we got a Protestant England, basically. Mm-hmm. Quick switch back under Mary, of course, and then a re-switch under Elizabeth, and then that was that. Um, but yeah, so Henry the Second doesn't end up going that far, but he comes pretty close. I mean, mm-hmm. again, you know, he he's more he is not concerned about religion so much he's concerned about other things um but that's all him we ignore him really right even though he's very important did marie come across with eleanor ah well this is the big question we don't know we have no idea who she was really um she wrote a ton of different stuff and there have actually been some people recently who've said you know there might have been a number of women writing Hmm. and they weren't necessarily all the same woman so there's some things we know that the woman called Marie de France wrote, and we know she says that her name is Marie and she's from France. That's how we sure. know. That's why we call okay. her Marie de France. So that wasn't necessarily her name. I mean, her name was probably Marie, but, you know, the the of France is us. Like, this this is how we right. sort of recognize her. Um, but, 
you know, there may have been more women writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were probably more women writing. Who were named Marie. Because it was a popular name. Yes. Um, but, you know, so anyway, so there's a sort of question about how many people there may have been actually writing that we don't necessarily recognize. Um, mm-hmm. But Marie de France definitely at least did write some of the big things attributed to her that we're going to talk about today. She definitely okay. wrote the stuff we're talking about today. And yes, there's a question of, did she come over with Eleanor? Who, of course, famously... So we've got Henry and his laws. Um, Eleanor sets up her court um, very much as a sort of literary and cultural haven. Right? Mm -hmm. This is... So speaking of times when you can look back in England and be like, when did this start? This is when England starts being less of what we might call (laughs) um, a backwater from the perspective of the rest of Europe. England has great literature from, you know the old English period. Extraordinary poetry. I mean, not just Beowulf. There's extraordinary stuff oh. <laughs> written in old English. Um, the Seafarers, one of my, you know, famous. Um, the Wife's Lament. I mean, there's tons of great, brilliant stuff. But um, this is one of those moments when we really get England sort of joining the rest of Europe <laughs> for um, the type of literature that was popular at the time. And the type of literature popular at the time are things like um, sort of adventure tales, right? Romances, Arthurian stuff, things like this. Yes. Right. Um, What eventually will sort of become known as courtly chivalric tradition, right? Um, So England under Eleanor really sort of kicks up its game here. She does really try to bring people to her court. Did Marie come over sort of with her or because of her? Possibly. I mean, it seems very, very likely, mm-hmm. you know, because Eleanor was from France. But of course, they're all from France. They all speak French. The court speaks French, right? The English court is still French. Ah, yes. Um, and they, of course, still have land in France, as mm-hmm. they will the Aquitaine. do. Yes, for a while. <laughs> I mean, they will continue to for a while. Um but, you know, they're the Normans, right? William of Normandy, who becomes yeah. William the Conqueror. You know, so, um, yeah, so England, the English kings are vassals to the king of France. They don't want to be. They want to rule France. Mm-hmm. That's the plot of, of Henry V, isn't it? I yes. Mean- and Henry VI. And, yeah. <laughs> it goes on A for a long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah, the end of... Once Henry VI dies, it's pretty much over. Um, but anyway, the general point is that, yeah, England and France are still very close. The English court speaks French. Um, so, yeah, Eleanor coming over from France, she brings a lot of people with her. A lot of people come over um, to be at that court. But also, um, you know, there are ties anyway. So people don't have to be coming specifically for her. I mean, the whole sort of court is still really tied to France. Yeah. Um But yeah, so Marie de France is writing for that court. Um, She's awesome. Uh, We don't know, as I say, exactly who she is or her exact dates, but she flourishes in the second half of the 1100s, (laughs) basically, is what we're talking about. Okay. Um, She knows Latin, French, English, maybe more. Um, Her, this, I want to reference the fact that she wrote a collection of fables, like Aesop's fables, except these are Marie's mm-hmm. fables. 
Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And in her introduction to that, or her sort of opening to that, um, she says, she sort of credits herself in this long list of sort of male translators and authorities who've done collections of fables that she says this is based on. Um, and she sort of includes herself in this lineage, right? So she sort of recognizes, recognizes her own authority um, as an author, right? That's mm-hmm. where that comes from, author authority. This is a great discussion that we have in class. But anyway, um, and one of the tales, one of the fables, um, the cock and the fox, is a major influence on Chaucer's nun's priest's tale in the Canterbury Tales, uh, where famously Chanticleer gets tricked by a fox and almost eaten, but then manages to trick his way back out of it and learns a learns a valuable lesson <laughs> about nice. about flattery. Uh, don't listen to flattery is is the valuable lesson. <laughs> anyway, um, but the nun's priest gives a couple um, sort of morals that he thinks this tale has. Uh, and the nun's priest is very specifically sort of um, skeptical about women, let's say. Sure. Which is sort of wonderful because he seems, I mean, unbeknownst to him, apparently, he is telling a tale that is based on a story, you know, basically written by a woman. Right. Which is cool. Anyway. Um, so Marie de France also has a series of lays, meaning like songs, poems, but songs, you know, mm-hmm. sung poems. Yeah. Lays. Um, these are super, super famous. They're incredible. They're awesome. They're great. You know, they're basically short stories. Um, and one of them is about a werewolf. <laughs> hmm. And so this werewolf, um, this Cleveret, is the name of the story and also our werewolf. Okay. He is a special, unique werewolf who's clearly set apart um, from the sort of usual Garwolf, which is Norman. Mm-hmm. So that's Gar instead of Were. Okay. Um, and that's sort of Marie's specific term. So that might be her... It's not that it, I mean, it exists other places, but she, um, it's her sort of take. I mean, you know, sort of variations on sort of Garwolf and things exist, you know, it's sort of Norman French and it, but, um, yeah, I mean, she does have a sort of specific dialectical word for werewolf here. Um, and those are the normal, those are the normal werewolves, as we would say, right? (laughs) Those are the ravenous werewolves. Um, so this Red is very specifically, he is a werewolf, mm-hmm. as we would say, in the sense that he's a man who can become a wolf, but he is not an ordinary sort of garwolf, right? Um, all right, so the fantastic story. You will notice some Lupin references in this, which is why I wanted to mention Lupin. Okay. Because Hermione figures out, we find this at the end of, you know, book three, Prisoner of Azkaban in Rowling, um, that Hermione figured out that Lupin was a wolf mm-hmm. <laughs> because Snape took over for him and made them read about werewolves. Yes. Right? And she realized that Lupin disappeared for a few days every month around the full moon. Um, and she sort of started putting things together. Yes. Right? <laughs> so, uh, Bisclavret. Uh, he, his wife, he's a, um, nobleman, by mm-hmm. the way. He's a noble knight in the court of the king. The king loves him. They go hunting together, you know, blah, blah. Yay. All right. Um, his wife starts to notice that he seems to disappear for a few days every month. 
mm-hmm. and she doesn't know where he goes. Um, and finally, she convinces him to tell her. He doesn't want to tell her, and she finally convinces him to tell her. And so he explains that a few months, a few days every month, uh, he turns into a wolf, and he has to go like hide his clothes um, so that he can turn back. Okay. This is, of course, specific to Bisclavret, basically. Um, And if he can find his clothes, then he can turn back into a man. And if he, for some reason, were unable to find them, then he would be stuck as a wolf. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm sure we can see where this is going. Yes. Uh, The wife has been having a long-time affair with a knight. And they conspire to hide her husband's clothes, which they do. Um, He disappears. Nobody knows where he is. Eventually, he's considered dead. She marries the knight. They're living in his castle and off of his land and all that stuff. Some time goes by. The king has come to visit, goes out hunting. Um, his dogs corner this wolf. Um, and the wolf runs up to the king's horse and, like, you know, sort of kneels or something and, like, kisses his foot or something like this. <laughs> licks his foot, I suppose. He's a wolf. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever. I mean, very clearly pays obvious respect to the king. Right. Right. Um, and so the king is like, oh, my gosh, this is a fascinating wolf. I've never seen a wolf do this before. Let us take him back to the court. So they do. Um, and the wolf is such a gentle, awesome wolf. And everyone comments on how sort of genteel this wolf is. And then um, the knight who, you know, has been sleeping with Bisclavret's wife this whole time. Now they're married. He shows up at a dinner or something and the wolf suddenly attacks him. Ooh. And everyone hauls the wolf off this guy. And they're like, oh, my gosh, what? And they're like, you know what? This is the only time this wolf has done this ever. This knight probably did something bad to this wolf. <laughs> and then somebody's like, you know what? This knight is married to a woman whose husband disappeared. Hmm. hmm. This is weird. This seems a little suspicious. I think we should take the wolf to their home and see what's up. Well, the minute the wolf sees the woman, of course, his former wife, uh, he runs at her and he tears her nose off. <laughs> yes. Yikes. And everyone's like, whoa, okay, there's something going on here. So they corner his wife and they like kind of torture her or threaten to torture her. And she confesses everything. So they get his clothes. They find him. You know, she's hidden them, of course. But they find him. They bring him to him. Um, He ignores them completely. And then some smart dude is like, oh, we should like leave him alone. We'll like put them in the bedroom and then we'll all leave. Hmm. So they do. (laughs) And this claret like disappears. And then comes back out as himself. And yeah. so now he's a guy again. Yes. Yay. And so the knight and the... Is the knight killed? I don't know. Anyway, everyone's punished. This Cleveret is, you know, rejoined with the king who's overjoyed to see him. He gets all his stuff back. Um, But his wife's descendants forever afterwards... I mean, obviously, he ends up getting... Presumably marrying someone else. I mean, she's gone. <laughs> but um, she's not yeah. dead, though. And... Apparently, her descendants ever after had no noses. Ooh. Yes. All right. So, um, so this is our story. Um, it's a great sort of pro-dog or wolf story. Sure. I super love it. Um, it's also great because it turns so many things on their head, right? Things that, um, you know, if you've read Rowling and know about Lupin, maybe you're less surprised about. But um, so first of all, the idea of the, the monster. Mm-hmm. Right? The wolf is, in fact, not the monster, right? The wife and her lover are the monsters. As we would, you know, in modern parlance. It's humanity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but it's wonderful because if you think, you know, there are who knows how many folk tales. Uh, I'm going to throw out like mm-hmm. East of the Sun, West of the Moon. But there are tons. There's a whole genre of folk tale, right? Where young yeah. woman marries handsome man, but she can never see him at night. And of course, he turns out to be a monster. But she looks now that she's looked at him like. Or sometimes a god. Yeah. But like now she has to go save him. Right, because he's cursed unless she can save him, and so she has to go find him and save him. Mm -hmm. Um, That is not the case here, right? The wolfiness is never really seen as a curse or a problem so much. It's just like, this is the thing that has happened to him. That's just how life is for him, you know? Um, And similarly, um, there's a great... So there's a play that I really love called Anoa by Ama Ata Edu. Um, This is an She's Guinean, um, so this is an African play that she says is based sort of on an African folktale, of which there are two versions. <laughs> and basically, there's a rebellious child who won't listen to their parents, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's someone they want to marry, and the parents are like, no, you sh- that person is bad news. Don't marry that person. The child is rebellious and goes off and marries the person. Um, in the stories where the child is a boy... The girl turns out to be a demon, and he you know, slays her and returns home triumphant. Basically, you know, I paraphrase. Okay. In the stories where the child is a girl, uh, she something horrible usually happens. I mean, her story ends in tragedy. <laughs> hmm. Right? So there's the sort of sexist take on this tale. Yeah. And Anoa is an adaptation where there's no there's no actual demon involved. Um, but it's very much Anoa is sort of this rebellious child. She marries someone maybe she shouldn't have, and um, bad things happen, and she sort of has to live with the consequences. She's trying to fix it, but she sort of can't. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a very sort of well-known genre of folktale as well. Right. And that also isn't the case here. Right. There's nothing wrong with the woman having married this werewolf. He's a good guy. He's beloved of the king. Yeah. Right. So there's nothing for her to feel shame about. There's nothing bad. He's not evil. She's not being punished. Right. I mean, there's nothing like that. Mm hmm. And in fact, if she'd remained loyal, like, everything would have been great. Right? Um, so the really sure. interesting turnabout that not only are the people the sort of, yes, monstrous ones, but also that essentially, right, their um, behavior is the problem, right? There was nothing on his part to cause it. We are not supposed to... There's no sense that we are supposed to understand, really, <laughs> where the wife might have been coming from in being surprised that her husband was a werewolf. No, like, we really mm-hmm. feel like she's been, she's just been looking for an excuse to get rid of him to marry this knight. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the sense, right, that then her ancestors are sort of marked forever with this sign of her disloyalty. Um, but it's not mm-hmm. just disloyalty, right? Um, it's a, it's a kind of, you know, prejudice, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Um, her unwillingness to recognize that the werewolf was worthy, you know, but it's a really, it is a really interesting sort of take, right? And is, yeah. and you, you know, you see very, very clearly where sort of Lupin comes from. Um, mm-hmm. So this story becomes sort of really famous. Um, I mean, a lot of her tales become really famous, but this werewolf story definitely gets worked into other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, you know, so we see variations of it in other places. Um, a related story that might have been influenced by her story, but is also a little bit different, uh, shows up in Gerald of Wales. 
Okay. Where there's a sort of separate story about these this group of werewolves um, from Ossery. And Jared of Wales has this story about how this priest is approached is approached by a wolf and uh, he's sort mm-hmm. of terrified but the wolf speaks to him and is like no no it's okay um but come with me there's you know someone who needs your help um and the turns out the wolf's wife is nearby she's also a wolf mm-hmm. um and he explains that they are werewolves um and the problem is there's this curse so they are cursed um okay you know, there's this end. Um, basically, you know, I forget the exact details here a little bit, but um, someone from their group or a couple from their group, like, sort of always have to be wolves. And so different people kind of are wolves for a year or so, however long it is, right? You're wolves for a while. Oh. And then you are sort of allowed to turn back and other people will go in your place. And I don't know. There are, and there are variations on this in some ways. There's some variations on this. There are other tales that tell of, like, you know, if you do this thing, you'll become a wolf. And then if you, as long as you refrain from eating humans, um, you know, after a certain time, you can turn back into a person. Anyway, there, yes. there are a few variations on this idea. But these werewolves from Ossery, um, you know, there's this, they're sort of cursed and some of them always have to be wolves. And so, you know, they've been wolves for a while. And unfortunately, his wife is dying. And he wants the priest basically to give her last rites. Um, and the priest is not super keen on this because it's a wolf. Uh, and so the mm-hmm. wolf, the, you know, husband, um, sort of like slits the fur and shows that there's a woman inside. And the priest gives her last rites and all this stuff. And then the husband, like, seals her back up, basically. <laughs> um, oh. So she's been given last rites and can presumably die as a human, even though she's still currently a wolf, right? Um, and the the reason, sort of, that we are being told this tale, ostensibly, is because the priest wondered if he's done the right thing, and Gerald of Wales was sort of asked, you know, this is something Gerald of Wales is thinking about, like, should the priest have done that or not? Right? Mm-hmm. Because in theory, a priest cannot refuse to give last rites to a person. <laughs> Right. Right. Um, but this was a, you know, sort of questionable. So what, so what should the priest have done? Right. Um, but again, right, there's, they're very human werewolves. They're definitely not evil werewolves. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the reminders, right? So transformation, I think, is something we talked about last episode. Um, and this is one of the big ones, right? So if, if a golem, or a zombie, right? Um, there's a question about life. Where is the line between life and death? How can you tell yeah. if someone's alive or dead? Right? There's this weird liminal thing. You know? Um, what happens when someone dies? Right? Um, well, here, there is a different question. Right? And the question is really about transformation. What types of transformation are possible? Um, so... Are you ready for it? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so a friend of mine, Kate Metzler, Kate Messler, is an expert on sort of magic, especially Jewish magic and things. I think we ought to ages. call her officially a friend of the podcast at this point. She's helped us out before. Yes, she is definitely a friend of podcast. Um, and so she sent me along, um, David Shoyevitz, um, who's a Jewish studies scholar, 
medievalist, um, has this article on Jewish werewolves. <laughs> and um, the sort of key point, we're going to talk about some of it, but one of the key points he makes in this article, which is great, is that um, this idea of transformation, right? That when a lot of people looked at these monsters, which is why I sort of opened with our discussion of them, mm-hmm. that the question isn't do they exist or not, right? The question is, what do they tell us, right? So werewolves are clearly about transformation. So what can they tell us sort of about mm-hmm. the capacity for transformation? And so one of the interesting things <laughs> um, that he has in this article um so there's a sort of school of jewish scholars moralists um theologians Mm -hmm. i guess um who lived in the rhineland um sort of late 12th and early 13th centuries okay um and they um had a lot of fascinating (laughs) <laughs> writings um and there's sort of the the Hasidim Vashkenaz is one of the ways you can find them if you're looking for them um but they were okay. really interested in what monsters sort of had to say about um the meaning of scripture and things mm-hmm. and one of the best <laughs> so Ephraim ben Samson um, has a whole commentary where he discusses the possibility that Benjamin, this would be the son of Jacob, right? So the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes. Um, Benjamin the, is the, the youngest son. Yep. Right? Yeah, and one of the favored, right? Because he's one of Rachel's kids. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> that he was a werewolf. All right. What? Yes. Yes. I mean, this doesn't come up in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but he doesn't have that big of a part, so... I know, and now we really (laughs) wonder why. Um, Because, clearly, it should have come up. (laughs) I'm I'm extremely disappointed that it did not come up. (laughs) This is important news. This is great news, yes. Um, Yes. So, here's the deal. (laughs) And this is also a great insight into Jewish scholarship, because, you know, what can you say? Here we go. All right. Um, so, there is a passage in Genesis, this is 49-27, for those who are following along, um, where Jacob blesses Benjamin and says, <laughs> and you're going to enjoy this quote if you don't already know it's coming, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours his prey, and in the evening he divides the spoils. Wow. All right. Okay. So, Shoevitz says, this is a great quote, To an author with a marked interest in lycanthropy, the reference in Genesis to a ravenous wolf must have proved irresistible. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yes. Yes. So instead of taking this as most do, of course, to be a metaphor. (laughs) Like you're hungry like the wolf, as Duran Duran would have said. Exactly. Um, Our esteemed exegete. Uh, decided that, in fact, Benjamin was a werewolf. And he says, so this is, um, right, that Benjamin was, in fact, a ravenous wolf who would occasionally maul people. And when the time came for him to turn into a wolf, as it says 
In Genesis, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. If he was with his father, then he would lean on him. Um, and in that merit would not turn into a wolf. Thus hmm. it says, this is from Genesis 44, 22. And if he leaves his father, he will die. That is to say, mm. if he separates from his okay. father, he will turn into a wolf and attack people. And anyone who and encounters him will kill him. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I love it. Um, so this author decided that this was, in fact, literal. Benjamin is a werewolf, and the reason that it says, you know, if he leaves his father, he will die, is because if he leaves his father, he turns into a werewolf, and then someone will kill him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then he actually goes on. He's got more sort of references to things that says in Genesis, and, Genesis um, and even Deuteronomy, and why this means that Benjamin is, in fact, a were- an actual werewolf. Right? Okay. Um, and then, this is the best part. Or maybe not, but it's another great part. Um, he references ritual that is sort of described in the Torah about the services at the temple when the temple stood, mm-hmm. right? Um, and for those who are listening, these are rituals that are recounted a lot in various ceremonies, especially on, you know, sort of Yom Kippur and things. Um, so there's lots of sort of reiterating what these rituals were, even though sometimes it could be hard to know exactly why they were what they were, because obviously they haven't been done in a very long time. You know, even when this right. author is writing, they haven't been done in more than a thousand years. So, you know, it's been a while. Um, and so one of the things that can happen, right? Sure, if it says um, an arcane element of the temple service, an offering of ashes, right? So according to Leviticus 6, priests would ceremonially collect and dispose of the ashes of the altar. Okay. Which, you know, makes sense. I mean... <laughs> right? They're doing burnt offerings. Yeah, exactly. So, you gotta have ways. Well, um, our wonderful author here explains that this is how you rid yourself of a werewolf. At the instant that it enters one's house, one who is fearful of it should take ashes collected from the fire and cast them about, and he, the person doing the casting, right, will not be harmed. They would do okay. likewise in the temple. Every day they would cast the ashes next to the altar. <laughs> so he's basically oh. saying the reason they did this in the temple service was to keep out werewolves. Okay. Yes. Which is freaking brilliant and amazing. But also <laughs> very much a kind of extraordinary commentary, right, on... Um, if you're going to believe in transformation, then you might as well go all the way, right? Um, and of course, mm-hmm. for our writer, one of the final sort of really important things is that um, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Her name is Hebrew for sheep. And of course, wolves eat sheep. Mm. Right? So, yeah. All right. <laughs> so... Shoivitz then goes on to point out, right, that the reason this is so interesting is because um, it's a reminder of how monsters, you know, things that we today separate, really, really, really try to separate from religion, (laughs) right? We put them in superstition or folklore. We call them all sorts of things, but we very much try Mm -hmm. to separate them from religion. And that at the time, 
which is really any time before the modern era. And honestly, this still exists in the modern era. That separation didn't exist. And more than that, you know, the, you could really look at monsters as sort of the strange part of the natural world and use them to try and explain things. Um, and so in the same article, he goes on to sort of discuss Christianity and the ways in which some Christian authors viewed the werewolf as proof that if a transformation that extraordinary could exist, then of course a transformation like the Eucharist could exist. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess if you have a man turning into a wolf once a month, the idea that your matzah turns into, you know, a slice of Jesus's body is... Yeah. I mean, why not? Why not? Right? 100%. Um, all right. So I've realized that we're running out of time and we haven't gotten to zombies. Oh, yes. So we could probably just maybe start a little bit about zombies. All right. And then we can talk more about them next time with other monsters. I knew we'd have to have a second episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. You can... Yeah. Put it out on, uh, like, All Souls Day or something. Yes. Maybe. Exactly. Um, all right, so zombies and revenants. We'll pick this up again next time. But obviously, so revenant mm-hmm. is the sort of old school term for something that returns from the dead. Okay. You know, bodies. Um, so this is where we start to really get into the idea of the undead. So before we talked, right, so transformation. Werewolves are really about transformation. Um, and... Of course, you know, there are other animals that are about, you know, transformation. Um, but the sense of transformation, um, the sense of the undead, right? Mm-hmm. They fulfill in some ways a similar question, right? Of these sort of liminal places we don't understand. But um, if transformation helps you sort of essentially explain miracles, right? Which is to say that Again, if a werewolf can transform, one of the other points is um, there are a couple people who are supposed to have been assumed bodily into heaven right. while still alive, like Elijah. Yeah. Um, and Mary, was Mary assumed into heaven? Yeah, but she has already died. So it's okay. The question is, how oh, okay. can it happen when you're alive? Yes. Right. And so this is also in Travis's article that one of another explanation was that, um, Basically, Elijah was already part angel. (laughs) So when he assumes it to heaven, he just transforms the rest of the way. And this is why he doesn't Mm -hmm. have to die. Okay. And again, right, werewolves, it's essentially, it's sort of the other side of that coin. If you can have miraculous things like that, or of course, if you're Christian, right, like the Eucharist, then there have to be variations that aren't (laughs) positive (laughs) or aren't necessarily positive. Sure. Right? And so werewolves fall into that category, basically. So zombies and revenants are a little bit different because um, there's something definitely unsettling, right? They're mm-hmm. not supposed to be around. But on the other hand, there are countless, countless, countless myths and all sorts of things about um, resurrection, right? right? So resurrection here is the positive, miraculous side, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we we all know what zombies are. I mean, we, you know, that that is the yeah the other side, right? So I did want to say one of the things I was sort of figured we'd end on before we go away um, is that obviously we all know the resurrection of Jesus, but I did want to mention Christina the Astonishing because we've mentioned her before. 
Um, oh, yes. Yes. And so we should call she her out again. She was dead, and they had a funeral for her. Yep. And then she got really tired of all the people at her funeral or something, and she flew up to the rafters. Yes. And then she continued to live for, like, another 20 years or something after that. Yes. Like... Yeah. Um, yes, she flew up to the rafters. It said, like, a bird. Um, and this is apparently her f- physical self, right? Not, like, her soul. I mean, she flew up. Yeah, they had to, like, get her back down. <laughs> and, yes, she continued mm-hmm. to live for a very long time. Um, and then, interestingly, as she actually was dying, um, she had promised this one sister, you know, so her fellow religious woman, um, that she wouldn't die before sort of telling this woman some more sort of secrets of the religious life. Um, but mm-hmm. the woman had to leave for a while, and Christina did apparently die while she was gone. And the woman came back, she like yelled at her, uh, and Christina came back to life long enough to tell her all the things before dying again. <laughs> yeah, so she she resurrected a lot. Um, okay. <laughs> and Fair. Seems hardworking. Yes. Uh, but the great thing about her, of course, right, is that she is Again, as she was in our previous episode when we talked about her, she's really on that line, right? There's a big old question Mm -hmm. about if she, because she's not an official saint, but there are a lot of people who absolutely do believe in her as a saint, but she's not been officially canonized by the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly sort of because she does walk that line, right? Is she miraculous, you know? Not quite, of course, like Jesus, but sort of along that line where she did resurrect, mm-hmm. um, not after days, but still after some time. Um, or is she more on the dangerous, dark side of the line where we should consider her a little more like a revenant? She's clearly mm-hmm. not undead when she comes back, right? But there's a sort of question mark on that resurrection. Right. Because normally when you resurrect, if you are on the positive side of the line, you don't fly up to the rafters of the church <laughs> like mm-hmm. a bird. Yeah. It's unusual. It is unusual. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of churches have very high ceilings. Like it's 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 a, a it's quite jump. a feat. I mean Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um there's a sort of interesting question, right? But she's a great great illustration of um why sort of revenants, right, zombies, um you know, those tales help to explain things like this, right? But in those mm-hmm. cases, they are more cut and dried, right? These are people who definitely were dead. They have come yeah. back. They are now still dead, but they're up and around as though they are not dead. Which, of course, is why today we tend to call them undead. Um, yeah. But they do form a sort of whole other category. Yeah. Um, cool. Should we start with them next time? And then maybe get into yeah. ghosts and monsters and stuff. Yeah. I had some good transformation stuff in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that, it does seem like, like a suitably creepy place to leave it. Yes. Thinking about zombies. And yes. uh, y'all can go, you know, uh, watch the music video for Thriller yes. before you go to bed. Um, Absolutely. As a nice bit of zombies. Um Yes. It's interesting because, you know, you talk about werewolves as sort of having both a positive side and a negative side, right? Like there's friendly Mm -hmm. werewolves. Right. And I think it says a lot possibly about the way that humans are just predisposed to like dogs and dog-like 
animals, maybe. Absolutely. Because you really, I can't think, at least in modern popular culture, which has been very obsessed with zombies for a long time, there really hasn't been, like, too much of a, like, a positive, friendly zombie type of story. Right? Right? Like, zombies are almost always, maybe it's because people maintain their fear of death. Yes. Whereas a wolf is just a dog you haven't met yet or something. Yes. Um. I think you're absolutely right. Um, There are a couple fun sort of variations on the zombies. There is the Drew Barrymore Santa Clarita diet. Yes. Where she... But the funny thing is, like, she she clearly becomes a zombie, but we don't think she died, do we? I'm a little confused on that. Um, Hmm. So that's a little bit of a weird take. And then... um, Shaun of the Dead, things kind of work out at the end. Ultimately. Yes. Ultimately. And there's also a movie about, like, a zombie romance that I haven't seen, but that I know is out there. Okay. We'll have to look at it. So there might be a few. Yeah. But you're right. It's not as much. No. And it's always, if if it's done, it's always kind of a satire. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely the point, because the fear of death and that line is very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's why, you know, one of the things why I thought we maybe we'd pause is because there are just so many examples. So maybe I'll just mention some. Um, there's stuff like, you know, a <laughs> priest comes to his churchyard, and I'm, I want to give a shout out to Nancy Cacciola, Afterlives, The Return of the Dead in the Middle Ages. All right. Um, you can read all these examples for yourself. But <laughs> um, yeah, a priest <laughs> comes back to his churchyard and he's going to say matins, which is sort of the early morning, it's like dawn before dawn prayer. Yeah. And um, he sees all these dead in the churchyard, like up and about. But he recognizes them as all having died. You know, uh, he knows they're all dead. He probably did some of the funerals. Uh, and he yeah. sees them like cluster around a priest, you know, the priest who's been sort of overnight at the church. And they're giving him offerings and stuff. And he mm-hmm. sort of, you know, grips his cross or whatever he's got with him and, like, starts on through the churchyard. And um, they're like, oh, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm here to say matins. I'm like, oh, we took care of everything. It's fine. Uh, and by the way, you're going to die pretty soon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and apparently it was true. He did. Um, oh, okay. That's the extent of the story. And... But there are tons of versions of things like that. And the great thing about it is, first of all, churchyards are supposed to be sacred ground. Right? Right. You can't have evil things on churchyards. They they talk about that in um in Hamlet, right? Like yeah. the the gravedigger saying he wasn't sure that Ophelia really deserved to be buried in the churchyard because Yep. Was she was she really yes. insane when she drowned herself? Yes. But does she get? But she gets to be buried on sacred ground because she was rich. Yeah, basically is what he says. <laughs> yeah. um, which you know, probably fair. Which is true. Yeah, but yeah. Um, although we also we feel for her. I mean, I think she should be. But but we yeah, you know, she wouldn't have been if she weren't rich. I mean, we can definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right. So there's this sense, right? Nothing. It can't be anything evil. So these are spirits that are you know they're not evil. So they're not necessarily back from the dead because they're bad, which is definitely how we tend to think of zombies today, right? They're just sort of mindless and ravenous. These are all very aware. They are sort of who they were in life, but now they're not alive, right? Yes. Um, They do have knowledge, though, that you couldn't have in life, you know, so the undead woman who tells him he's going to die soon. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So they do have access, you know, they do have this sort of power. Um, but also, you know, we th- tend to think, well, maybe this would be a pagan superstition, right? But no, they're all Christian. They're making offerings or giving offerings to the priest who was there in the church already overnight, mm-hmm. you know, to do matins. <laughs> I mean, so that's also not true. They're not pagan. And they're not connected to anything clearly pagan. I mean, they're Christian. They're aware. They do have special knowledge. But they can hang out in the churchyard. There's nothing stopping them. <laughs> um, so there are all these very interesting sort of contradictions about the way we frequently think of the undead. Mm-hmm. Or zombies, even. right? Um, and this is one of the big things in the Middle Ages, that frequently revenants um, are aware. Sometimes they don't realize they've been dead. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they do know, so they'll sort of sneak around at night, but they'll go do things that they used to do, right? They'll, they will sneak into church, which is even more surprising. I mean, the fact they can actually go in, but I guess, mm-hmm. you know, if you were Christian and you were buried well, why not? I mean, sure. Mm-hmm. If you're welcome in the graveyard, you're welcome in the church, I guess. You know, so they'd go in and like hear something like Matins, right? While it's still night out, <laughs> then they'd go back. Sure. Um, you know, or they'd sneak around to do other things that they used to do. Um, and so there's this very interesting question about sort of where they are on the continuum of <laughs> life to death. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I mean, theoretically, at this point, your soul has departed. You know, it's somewhere mm-hmm. else and your body is supposed to decay and then you'll meet up again, at, you know, after the last Sometime. judgment. Yeah. So... Yeah. Which, of course, is why we think of zombies what's, as evil. So what's they're... powering your body around right? Yeah, if your soul is right. no longer there? And also, if your soul is no longer there, aren't, aren't you evil? Like, you're soulless, literally. Right. We tend to think of that as meaning evil, but that's not sort of how it plays out, right? Um, so there's some really interesting questions there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and there is, you know, there's, the, there's a, as I said, there are a ton of legends like that. So Christianity has a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. I figured maybe we'll start next time with the Norse stuff because, okay. so that's where we'll pick up next time is with the Norse. Um, some great undead. Um, right. And then before we end, we'll get I want to mention yes. this one really creepy, actual true thing. Ooh. <laughs> fact yes. that I came across recently. So, okay. When humans are, dying basically like the part of your brain that's responsible for cognition and stuff like the the brainy part that you think of yes um the gray matter shuts down before your brainstem does and your brainstem contains a lot of reflexes and and things like that i hope i'm explaining this well i have a friend who's a neurologist who hopefully isn't going to shoot me angry texts when he hears this um sounds good so far so yeah you, what you get sometimes when you have brain-dead patients is this thing that's referred to as the oh, Lazarus sign or yes. Lazarus reflex, where they will suddenly move their arms yes. in different ways. Um, this comes up, I think, in an episode of Star Trek Next Generation that scared the hell out of me when I was a young child, <laughs> where uh, Beverly Crusher hallucinates all these dead bodies yeah. suddenly sitting up around yeah. her. But... It turns out, like, this is also an actual thing that happens um, in brain-dead patients. So, yes, um, 
Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> On that note. Yes. Well, that's also why sometimes if, you know, loved ones of patients who are not going to wake up again and cannot wake up again will sometimes have a sort of false hope. You know, it's mm-hmm. something they will hang on to because they'll say, oh, they but move. I saw their eyelids flicker. Yeah. I saw this happen. And mm-hmm. it's hard to explain that those can happen without any brain function. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, of course, one of my best friends, who you also know, is a medical examiner. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is something we, I mean, we've talked about occasionally, um, which is that idea of... Because honestly, you're right. I mean, they're the ways in which we diagnose death. This is actually in Cacciola's book, even. She doesn't go to the modern mm-hmm. day. But um, when do you declare someone dead? Right? Is such an issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, even to this day, you know, there's something really. Yeah. And it can be much more difficult than one might think. And that's mm-hmm. always been true. I mean, it's true today because we have machines that can keep people alive. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's true in the Middle Ages as well, because that's why you have things like Follow the House of Usher, right? There are yeah. levels of sort of, you know, comas where someone can still be alive, but it is not immediately perceptible right. <laughs> to people Especially with if you don't have, tools. like, a stethoscope, yeah. right? Like, that was a relatively modern invention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you can't and, feel the pulse. Yeah. I'm sure that there's a lot of really well-justified anxiety. You see it a lot in Victorians, but yes. I'm sure that it's been around for a long time about people, you know, being buried alive. Yeah. And, uh, well, all that's famously like people that. coming back to life at their own funerals. Yes. Finnegan's yes. Wake. Yeah. Um, there's so many famous variations on that. But also, of course, there are stories even to this day that are true. Right? Not all of them are true, but some of them are true. Of, you know, so-and-so was being taken to the morgue, whatever, and woke up in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things aren't impossible, right? Yes. Which is a reminder, even today, even with all our tools, you can miss something. You can, yeah. Um, so there There's is a very a interesting uh, podcast on this that I will figure out who did it, um... Because I think it was maybe Radiolab, but it might have been This American Life. Those are the two big suspects. Yes. Um, about a young girl who became essentially in a vegetative state, what we would say, mm-hmm. after um, having her tonsils removed a few years ago. Yes. And her family rejected the doctor's definitions of brain deadness. Yeah. And... Um, so there's actually a lot of things about, like, racial justice in medicine and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that are worth thinking about um, in connection to this issue. Mm-hmm. So I will try to find that and put a, a link in the in the notes. Yeah. Or I will just cut this if I can't find it. That's Whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right. But it's I'm going to do the thing. ending spiel, though, because yes. we are getting on in time. Yep. All right. All right. Next time, Norse and Japan. And more Next stuff. time, yes. So, uh, th- thanks for tuning in. Hope everybody has a good spooky Halloween. You can Facebook with us on Ask a Medievalist Facebook group. You can tweet us at, at 
Ask a Medievalist. You can check out our website and submit questions through a form on the website or email us directly at questions at askamedievalist.com. And I uh, hope you all keep washing your hands and, you know, be careful of uh, werewolves and <laughs> keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 